The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. the Iraqis' relationship with Iran. That relationship at some level goes back, you know, a couple of centuries um, uh, where, you know, the religious um, back and forth between uh, Iraq and, uh, you know, certain Iraqis and Najaf and Iranians, etc., is, is much deeper and longer term. So really, I, I mean, one issue is, you know, you talk about long relationship. I don't necessarily. I'm Scott R. Anderson. This is the Lawfare Podcast for March 20th, 2023. 20 years ago today, the United States invaded the nation of Iraq, intent on removing the regime of dictator Saddam Hussein and installing a stable democratic government. What followed instead was two decades of political instability and horrible sectarian violence that has yielded a modern Iraqi state that remains plagued with corruption and other problems and is increasingly under immense pressure from the nearby regime in Iran. To gain perspective on the legacy of the U.S. invasion of Iraq and how it continues to shape the relationship between the two countries today, I sat down for conversations with two individuals whose personal and professional lives have been intimately tied up in the last two decades of the U.S.-Iraq relationship. First, I sat down with my former boss from my own time working at Embassy Baghdad, Ambassador Doug Silliman, who is now the president of the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, and previously served in numerous capacities in Iraq, including as ambassador, over his decades-long career as a U.S. diplomat. I then sat down with Salem Shalabi, an individual who has held numerous positions across several administrations in the Iraqi government over the past two decades, most recently serving as the head of the Trade Bank of Iraq until January of this year. With each, I discuss the legacy of the U.S. invasion, how it impacts the bilateral relationship today, and the central role Iran has come to play in the country. It's the Lawfare Podcast for March 20th, Two Perspectives on the Invasion of Iraq at 20, with Ambassador Doug Silliman and Salem Shalabi. First up is my conversation with Ambassador Silliman. Here it is. So, Ambassador, I want to start with a question that's maybe a little inward-looking, as U.S. policymaker yourself, a uh, community of people I, I, I am, or at least it was at one point a part of. How do you think the U.S. policymaking community, and particularly the U.S. government, thinks about its experiences in Iraq over the last 20 years, and particularly in that post-invasion period, and, and, and how it shapes its approach to particularly Iraq, but perhaps other policy questions today? Scott, thanks very much. It's a, a really good question. And I kind of want to answer on two levels. Um, the first level is I believe that what we experienced in Iraq after we went in was so far different from what we expected. Uh, we had to constantly readjust and change the way we approached it. So I think a lot of people in the U.S. government, including myself, have made a lot of small policy implementation adjustments and actually come up with some good ideas when trying to deal with difficult problems that were that we confronted while we were in Iraq, uh, particularly on the security military side, the difference between what the U.S. military did uh, in the battle against Al-Qaeda, the Battle of Fallujah and in Anbar, 
in the surge in 2006, 2007, is very much a contrast with the fight against ISIS and the building partner capacity, the by, with, and through methods that the U.S. military employed to support Iraqis in the fight. So that was an evolution in implementation of policy. But the second level, I think, is actually more important. It has to do with why did we get into Iraq in the first place? What were the underlying goals of the policymakers? And I cannot admit to any particular insight from experience at that level at that time, because I wasn't even in Washington. But as a practitioner, as somebody who was in the field and who needed to deal with the consequences of the American invasion, it seems to me that not only was the real goal of the American intervention in Iraq unclear from the start, but different people had different goals. There were conflicting goals, everything from trying to get rid of the possibility of chemical and nuclear weapons in Iraq to remaking Iraq as a friendly democracy and a beacon of democracy and st stability in the region, uh, and a lot of things in between. So uh, I think that both the private and the public definitions of goals, what the U.S. was trying to accomplish in using the military in Iraq needed to have been clearer from the very beginning. And that might have made things turn out differently if we knew what direction we were going and where we were headed. So over the course of your career, you have intersected with Iraq and engaged with the Iraqi government, U.S. policy towards Iraq, Iraqis at different eras and kind of at different levels. What has been kind of, in your experience, the evolution of the Iraqi perspective on the experience after the invasion, and particularly how that resonates and impacts their relationship with the United States today and, and at those different historical moments? Um, is there a different perception that Iraqis have of the United States as a partner, as a world actor, that's shaped by that experience? And, and has that changed over the course of the 20 years that we've now lived through since the U.S.-led invasion? I think that there are a number of different interpretations by Iraqis or different opinions of Iraqis of the United States and what the United States did in Iraq and has done over the past 20 years. In some ways, it differs by community or by uh, sort of religious background. I mean, for example, I have met a relatively large number of Shia Iraqis, particularly from the South, who are still willing to tell me that they were happy that the United States got rid of Saddam because no matter what has happened since then, Saddam for their community was much worse than what came after the American intervention. I think also when you look at Iraqi Kurds and Iraqi Kurdistan, American intervention, even before 2003, has given Iraqi Kurds a degree of autonomy and independent operation uh, and probably shielded them from the consequences of some of their mistakes that they would appreciate, uh, at least at the government level now. The other problem, though, that I see is that for a lot of Iraqis who I have talked to who were not in the opposition overseas, who did not have as personal a stake in getting rid of Saddam Hussein, there seems to have been, in many ways, the perception that Iraq has lost its agency, that many people see Iraq post-2003 as a struggle between Iran and the United States, two countries that they believe are more powerful than they are, and there's really nothing that they can do. 
Uh, that's one of the things that I probably regret most about what has happened to Iraqi attitudes. And uh, particularly as ambassador, one of the points that I tried to make as frequently as possible publicly and privately to Iraqis was to explain to Iraqis the amazing history of the country, uh, the economic potential, uh, where Iraq could go, the fact that Iraq uh, was one of the largest oil producers in the world and did have a lot of money coming in, and that they needed to find a way to define their own personal uh, group and national goals, and that they had the power to make these decisions on their own. So I, I think that one of the effects of the American intervention and our attempt to essentially remake Iraq, uh, at least in the first decade, may have led to uh, a sense of loss of Iraqi agency, which is making it more difficult for Iraqis to move more smartly and directly into a more positive future. So you've already mentioned the U.S.-Iranian relationship as having cast this long shadow over Iraq really for the last 20 years, particularly perhaps most strongly over the last 10, 10 to 15 years. Tell us a little bit about what your experience has been with that relationship. How much did the U.S. invasion of Iraq impact the trajectory of the U.S.-Iranian relationship? And how much does the legacy of that invasion, whether you know, rightfully or wrongfully, still play into those dynamics between the United States and Iran with Iraq as, uh, you know, a third party with a vested interest in both relationships? Yeah, I, I think in general, uh, the U.S. intervention and particularly pulling down the regime of Saddam Hussein has made it much easier for Iran to operate inside Iraq. Certainly for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Quds Force, they have a lot of Iraqi allies, uh, many of which were developed uh, through the Badr Corps and the uh, Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, uh, co-religionists who have a lot of ideas in common about the future of the region and the, the way that governance ought to be run under a Shia, uh, under a Shia government. So I, what I saw and my as you noted, I saw Iraq from a Turkish standpoint, from a Jordanian standpoint, from a Kuwaiti standpoint, and on three tours of duty from an Iraqi standpoint inside the country. And what I saw over the trajectory of this time, starting in 2003 when I was in Amman, Jordan, was facilitating the ability of Iran to directly and indirectly pursue its foreign policy and security goals. Uh, which included things such as continuing to supply Hezbollah and uh, in Lebanon, Hamas and other groups in, in uh, the Gaza Strip after 2011 and the beginning of the civil war in Syria, a real effort from the Iranians to do things to help support the regime of Bashar al-Assad, moving material first over Iraq in planes and then through Iraq on the ground uh, to support and build militia forces in Syria to help the government. So there was a concerted effort on the part of certainly people in the IRGC and the Quds Force to take advantage of the relationships that they had with Iraqis uh, from the Saddam era and to project Iranian strategic power into and through Iraq more broadly in the region. And that was one of the things I think that the U.S. invasion and deposing of Saddam and pulling down of the government facilitated because we were unable quickly enough to put in place a government that was 
either completely run by the United States or Iraqi nationalist enough to have a consensus on opposing some of these activities uh, of the Iranians during the time. So again, I think what it did, it made it easier for Iran to expand its strategic outreach, to project strategic power through proxy forces, through fellow traveler politicians in Iraq uh, and elsewhere in the region as well. But uh, to use Iraq as a base made it more effective and easier for the IRGC and the Quds Force to project Iranian power beyond their borders. So all of these factors really come to a head in a way in Iraq itself, where we have seen really multiple iterations of Iraqi leaders from different political factions and political parties wrestle with the Iraqi relationship with the United States and to some extent Iran as well, because there is such a close relationship between them, and find different ways to try and walk a pretty careful an awkward line between engagement and a degree of, of distancing. How would you describe that sort of approach among the Iraqi, I guess, political class, for lack of a better way to describe it? How do they tend to think about the parameters of the Iraqi relationship with the United States and insofar as it relates to Iran, both in terms of what it, what it is practically and what it, what it could be, what the outer limits of that relationship might be? I think that the relationship and the answer to the question is essentially embedded in the way that the United States and Iran approached Iraq starting in 2003. We being a very institutionalized, non-individualized society tended to want to see the development of Iraqi institutions and have a good, solid legal basis for the operation of those institutions. The Iranians were, were much more pragmatic and had a different set of tools in their toolkit. They wanted to be able regardless of the guiding laws, regardless of government policy, to quietly accomplish the things that they wanted to accomplish. And in fact, the strength of the Iranian moves into Iraq over the past 20 years has been mostly that it is done outside the legislature, outside passage of laws, where it's easier to have uh, opposition from people who oppose the ideas. So I, I think, first of all, we were looking for an Iraqi government structure and a legal infrastructure that looked very much like the United States, where with the assumption that people would follow the laws, uh, and if they didn't, they would be individually punished, uh, and then others would follow from that example. The Iranians took that different, much more pragmatic, uh, below-the-table approach, which in the end, I think, was more effective, at least in the short term and at least in the first in the first 20 years. So I think that was the one thing that has helped the Iranians. They were they were closer to the culture of Iraq. They had a different modus operandi. And frankly, they were more willing to take risks and they were more willing to do things that would have been outside even their normal playbook because Iraq, with such a long border with Iran, is so strategically important to Iran, much more strategically important to Iran economically in terms of security and politically and culturally than Iraq is important for the United States. So I think that the the way that we looked at success on the ground essentially led to, if you will, a greater Iranian success than an American success, at least in the first 20 years. So for the Iraqi leaders on the ground now, how do they think about the relationship with the United States? What do they think are the right avenues of engagement, the right levels of cooperation? 
and where might there be red lines or areas of concern? We've seen in the last few of the kind of rapid succession of prime ministers we've seen over the last few years, we've seen, of course, you know, Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi say we need to start moving U.S. troops out of Iraq. But it's been a slow, kind of consciously, deliberately slow process. And then just this past January, we saw the most recent prime minister, al-Sudani, kind of come to the defense of the U.S. and to some extent Western troop presence, uh, substantial extent Western troop presence, saying, no, they're here for a reason to train us and help us with ISIS and to stay. Yet there's been a lot of, there's a lot to thread that needle. It's a tricky needle to thread. Where are the areas where the Iraqi government wants to see that engagement with the United States, whether in the military realm or elsewhere, and where might it go too far? Where is there less appetite for that? It's hard to say where in the Iraqi government people want to see continued engagement. I think broadly in the Iraqi population, they want to see at a minimum a balance of engagement between Iran and the United States. And for those who are looking more for economic benefits or for more serious long-term security benefits, they probably want to see parts of that move closer to the United States and to Iran. I think that, I mean, I've been a bit surprised and pleased by the performance of uh, Prime Minister Sudani since he's been in power all the relatively short a time. He did come to power with a relatively large number of supporters in the parliament, although many of those supporters were uh, from pro-Iranian or militia-linked parties. He also had significant support from the Christian community, the Sunni community, and uh, the Kurdish community. So he had a broader writ, I think, than earlier prime ministers. This is not a lowest common denominator government of everybody of national unity. Uh, It's close, but it's a step removed from that. And Sudani, perhaps because he has what he considers significant support in the parliament from different factions, has taken a few steps that are closer to what the United States would want to see than Iran, for example. He seems to be moving fairly quickly into questions of curbing corruption in the government. He certainly has made public statements about the need for a continued American and Western security presence, not to fight the war against the remnants of ISIS, but to make sure that the Iraqi security forces are are properly equipped and trained to do that job. And I think that there is more movement toward commercial engagement with Western and American companies under Sudani that I have seen uh, in recent years, certainly than I saw when I was ambassador. You have seen the signature of significant deals with Siemens and General Electric for electricity generation and transmission. Uh, You have seen a couple of consortia working on gas capture and prevention of Iraqi gas flaring, uh, which should have the dual good effect of reducing Iraq's cost for gas uh, and also reducing Iraq's dependence on Iran for uh, gas or electricity purchases. So I, I think Sudani has, in his first few months, made some of the very important decisions that we had been pressing for as the United States for more than a decade. The question is going to be, will these business contracts, the MOUs, and the steps that he has taken actually be fully implemented? Because there does remain an undercurrent of political opposition to any engagement with the United States at all. Certainly, uh, there is a strong sense among some of the 
more pro-Iran militias, that there should be no U.S. security personnel at all in Iraq. There has been, again, for a decade, uh, very quiet pushing and blocking in the bureaucracy of contracts with American and more broadly Western companies, uh, presumably because the people blocking them did not like the political direction that meant or felt that they might uh, be able to profit more from contracts with non-Western companies with different standards. So I think that Sudani has begun to move in the right direction. He's taken the first few steps, but the implementation of what he has done is going to be the most important measure. And there may still be parts of the Iraqi government, parts of the Iraqi political spectrum that will try to block these decisions simply because it permits or even helps to grow American and Western security or business presence in Iraq. That, that's what I'll be watching in the next couple of years. So we have seen over the last few years a kind of common refrain, I think, among a lot of Iraqi leaders. I'm thinking most expressly articulated by, I think, Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi, but Prime Minister Academy and a couple other folks have said something to similar effects, which is a lot of frustration with the extent to which Iraq becomes a battleground for U.S.-Iran tensions. And we have seen this cycle where often growing tensions between the United States and Iran triggers increasing exchange of hostilities within Iraq. You see Iranian, Iran-backed militias targeting U.S. military and diplomatic presences, and then reactions by the United States, um, airstrikes on militia sites in Iraq and in Syria, most being the most common sort of response. The Soleimani strike um, that happened in January 2020 being maybe the more outlier response, the most kind of dramatic response the United States has pursued. How do Iraqis, and particularly I think Iraqi leaders, respond to that sort of relationship? And and how does the different U.S. posture towards Iran, and particularly towards you know using force against Iran in Iraq or in the broader region, how does that intersect with the Iraqi political system? And, and the Iraqi relationship with the United States more generally? What are the ramifications of that? I think, honestly, what the United States has done militarily in retaliation for past or perceived future threats from Iran or Iranian proxies in Iraq has contributed to the Iraqis' loss or, or sense of a loss of agency as a country. I remember in the period... In 2019, between the time that I left and the end of the, the year, there was a growing frustration among many Iraqis with Iran and some of the Iranian-backed militias, particularly in the South, where with the war against ISIS over, many of these militias started acting more like criminal organizations, uh, shaking down businesses, uh, going into neighborhoods and acting as sort of hyper-local governments sometimes uh, with nothing more than a few kids with Kalashnikovs. And there was a growing sense that Iran was overstepping its bounds and directly hurting Iraqis. The the killing of Hassan Soleimani and uh, Abu Methi al-Mahandis uh, in early 2020 kind of broke that feeling that Iran was the one that was hurting Iraq the most. And I think if you look at any one thing that the United States has done other than the invasion of Iraq, killing Soleimani and uh, Mohandas on Iraqi territory probably 
convinced a lot of Iraqis that it was really hopeless to deal with the United States. No matter what was happening, the United States would do whatever it wanted in Iraq. Now, I know from my experience in the government that this is not at all true, but I think that that attack in particular disheartened a large number of Iraqis and convinced them that essentially the United States was always going to work in Iraq for its own interests and not necessarily for the interest of Iraq. So I think to that extent, it was a harmful attack for Iraq itself. So I think that leads to a kind of more difficult policy question then for that I know a lot of U.S. policymakers are wrestling with, which is what can the United States do, if anything, to productively try and counter at least the most malign forms of Iranian influence in Iraq. There, there's a pretty good, well-established track record of Iran really genuinely undermining Iraqi political institutions, certainly through support of Iran-backed militias that often operate outside the context of Iraqi laws, total kind of separate centers of power in ways that undermine the effectiveness of the Iraqi state. There is a track record here. I mean, there, it's, it's hard. I don't think many people would dispute that that's an accurate description of what Iran does, if not the whole universe of the relationship. But then what can the United States do to oppose it? You hear some people from the outsides of analysts saying we should be much more active in targeting Iran, and some people even calling for more sort of hostile action and the use of force against Iranian militias, essentially because no one else is in a position to do that other than the United States effectively because of the political paralysis within Iraq around those issues. Do you think that would be, it sounds like you, you're skeptical of that approach. What is the right approach then for how to counteract those, at least the most damaging forms of Iranian influence in Iraq? I think the only way to gradually and over time begin to counteract the most damaging forms of Iranian influence or the, the grabs for power of Iranian-supported militias and political groups is to try to strengthen Iraqi institutions. And maybe I should go through a little bit what I mean by that, because I, I don't want it to sound uh, as just a, a trite phrase. Uh, I mean, one of the things that we should do that we have been doing is to continue to encourage Iraqi governments to integrate more uh, completely politically in the region. Uh, I know that uh, Prime Minister Mustafa Kadhimi worked quite hard to develop a trilateral relationship with Jordan and with Egypt. Uh, this seems like it's standing the test of time, and Sudani is trying to do the same thing. We have tried to encourage closer political relations with countries of the GCC and other significant Arab and regional countries as well over over time with, with Iraq. This will, at least at the beginning, help build confidence in Iraqi government so people actually talk to the people who are uh, the officers in Iraqi government and may lead to, or is likely to lead to, deeper economic and political engagement with Iraq. So I think the first thing we need to do is, if you will, use America's convening authority to broaden the base of support for Iraq so that it no longer becomes a perception of the United States versus Iran, but rather the United States and Europe and the Arab world helping to support Iraq to push back on Iranian uh, abuses. That, that has both internal and external elements that could be helpful. There are a lot of other things that the United States can do that will play to what Iraqis see as our strengths. Um, one of them is calibrating properly 
what our security engagement with Iraq is going to be. And what we are doing right now, quiet security assistance, uh, providing both uh, training and mentoring and equipping of Iraqi security forces who are demonstrably loyal to the elected government uh, is a good step. Most Iraqis support that. It is only those who would like to see a weaker Iraq and more Iranian or less ability of people to to create rule of law on the streets of the country, for example, uh, would be opposed to that. So I think that's something that most Iraqis support. We should stay in Iraq. I think that the lesson of Afghanistan and the withdrawal from Afghanistan is not a direct one for Iraq because the attitude, the history of the country and its ability to support itself are much different. Nonetheless, I think that the presence of American and other Western forces, particularly through the NATO training mission, will help build confidence, esprit de corps, and the idea that there are Iraqis who are really defending Iraq as opposed to a confession or a, a non-government agenda. I think we also need to look at what the United States can do to help educate younger Iraqis. In my experience, a lot of Iraqis have a great respect for the education that one gets in the United States from from elementary school, but certainly up through university. And there are things that the United States government has done, particular programs that have, that have brought high school students or college students to the U.S. on exchange programs or facilitating visas for Iraqi students, which over time will have more impact as more and more Iraqis get to come to the United States and learn how they can turn their dissatisfaction with something that has happened on the ground into local activism. And that is the basis for a lot of American exchange programs. I also think we need to slowly and cautiously encourage both the Iraqi government and American companies to look more seriously at a broader range of business deals. Most of the business deals that have happened now are somehow in the hydrocarbons industry or power generation. If these deals that I talked about that Prime Minister Sudani has approved and signed will go forward and be implemented, it will give other American companies confidence to look at deals in agriculture and food processing, in telecommunications, in logistics, in areas that Iraq needs where American companies can work with Iraqi companies to build bigger businesses in Iraq. And finally, I think we need to work very closely with the government of Iraq and help them put together a concrete and realistic plan to deal with energy transition and climate change. Uh, Iraq is going to be one of the five worst affected countries with climate change over time. And the area around Basra, uh, in Kuwait, Basra, and southwestern Iran is probably the hottest uh, seriously inhabited area on the face of the planet with temperatures uh, routinely reaching 125 degrees in the summer. And the United States has technologies, but also the United States can help Iraq shape the idea of what they need to be doing as a country to begin to adapt to what will be the worst of climate change. So these are the areas where I think the United States can have some positive influence. It is all long-term it is all subject to being pulled on a moment's notice by Congress or an administration which is upset with something that the Iraqi or Iranian governments do. 
But I think the only strategy that is going to work is for the United States to play to our strengths in the eyes of Iraqis over the medium to long term. Well, you've already anticipated my next question, but I, I, I want to put it to you anyway, because I think there's a little, a little deeper to dive here. So far, so much of our relationship now, at least the parts we hear about in the news, is security related, particularly in our assistance relationship. A lot of the funds and efforts and training is focused in the security realm. And part of that is, in my mind, uh, in my experience, although please feel free to disagree with me, a little bit of a hangover, a, a reaction to the history of U.S. and, frankly, international engagements in Iraq, in which it was the recipient of huge sums of influxes of fund around things ranging from economic assistance to institutional development to rule of law and justice issues that I think a lot of people f- feel like they did not see a return of investment on, and therefore the interest in those sorts of support have really dried up. Uh, and security has emerged and remained as kind of the main pillar of that relationship. Do you think that's the right way in this medium to long-term frame where you're encouraging us to think about it, that we need to be channeling our engagement with Iraq? Or are there other pillars that need to be set up along security assistance for either assistance relationships or facilitation relationships? You've mentioned a few already, but I'm wondering what the big ones that stand out are, or if there are any others that we should line up alongside security. Well, I I will reiterate that I think that security assistance, training, mentoring is something that should remain in the mix. We should not do in Iraq what we did in Afghanistan. We should look at uh, what we did when U.S. combat forces left Iraq at the end of 2011, where we moved a large part of the equipping and training and mentoring mission from combat forces outside in Iraq to inside the embassy, where they had diplomatic military attache status but we're still able to do this non-combat role of supply, train, and, and mentor. I think that's it's absolutely crucial to continue those kinds of programs because to not continue those programs will be read locally and regionally as the United States abandoning in failure one of its biggest projects of the 21st century. I, I, I go back to what I said a couple of minutes ago, then maybe can give you some more examples. I think we need to look at the things that Iraqis want to see in their future and see where Iraqis perceive the United States as a as a core or preferred provider. So again, education is something that Iraqis see that the United States does better than anyone else. No matter whether you believe that or not, that's the perception I get from Iraqis. So the extent to which we can send kids on exchange programs. Uh, My particular favorite in Iraq is something called the Iraq Young Leaders Exchange Program, which brings high school and undergraduates to the U.S. for a summer to work on their English, but also to get to know how America works and to teach them community activism so that the idea is when they go back, they're not trying to defeat Iranian militias, but rather they're trying to work on problems in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and to try to give them the, the skills to do that. That has been a program that has been funded by the U.S. government for 14 or 15 years running. And what it's developed kind of a self-sustaining bit. The, some of the earlier graduates of this program are now mentoring the younger graduates of this program when they come back to Iraq. This is a kind of thing that I have not seen in many other places in the world. And it is the long-term funding by the U.S. government at a relatively modest level 
that has made this program successful. I also think that we need to do much more for business promotion. And this is what's going to be very difficult for the United States because for the period, I mean, Scott, that you and I were both in Iraq, it was almost impossible to get to the signature of an actual contract with an American company in Iraq. It was very difficult politically and bureaucratically. So not only does the U.S. government need to work with groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the state trade promotion agencies to get more opportunities in front of Iraqis, we also need to work with Iraqis, this will be more difficult, to try to put in place the kinds of bureaucratic reforms that will make it easier to get from business idea through negotiation, through MOU to contract to, to execution in a time frame that is years or at least you know, less than a year and not decades is what it has been recently. So I, I think those are two areas where, in addition to a security pillar, we need to have. So exchanges, education, bringing Iraqis to the United States, and then trying to find ways for American companies to more frequently get in front of the Iraqi government and Iraqi companies, combined with a push, probably in conjunction with the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, to get some reforms inside the Iraqi system so that they become a facilitator of business deals, not a block to business deals. So I have one last question for you to take a kind of a step back, which is that in historical, in reflection on what the thinking was behind the US-led invasion 20 years ago, a part of it across different perspectives of what was the goal to get out of the invasion was, a kind of unified perspective was that Iraq was a focus of U.S. regional policy for a variety of reasons. And that stayed true for a number of years. And then Iraq slowly, in part because of the challenges operating there, I think it's fair to say, fell down the priority list, maybe bumped back up during the ISIS conflict, fallen back down. And now there is this very strong perception that uh, Iraq, to some extent the broader Middle East, but certainly Iraq, just doesn't fit very highly on the priority list particularly in a world where the Biden administration is so focused on China and Russia. But even when we heard uh, Senior Director Brett McGurk lay out kind of the Biden strategy for the Middle East at the Atlantic Council, I think last month or the month before, he really didn't give much mention to Iraq, um, which is surprising because he, of course, is an old Iraq hand who you, you I know have worked with very closely, as, as have I on occasion. Where does or where should Iraq fit in the United States regional strategy and broader global strategy? Um, how important is it politically, strategically, maybe morally? And what does that mean in terms of how we should discuss it on the list of foreign policy items that the Biden administration and its successors are and will be juggling for the years to come? I think that Iraq does not need to be at the top of the foreign policy agenda as it was, say, in the surge in 2006, 2007, when President Bush was doing weekly teleconferences with Prime Minister Maliki to make sure that they were tied up very closely with the Iraqi government. I think that the United States has spent enough resources, enough blood in Iraq, that there is really nothing more that we can do systemically to make Iraq turn out any better than it's going to turn out on its own. And we need to shift our focus and make it not necessarily a lesser priority, but as I said, as I argued a few minutes ago, to find realistic things that the United States can do at a relative low cost to the United States 
that will have a concrete impact, positive impact on Iraq. Education exchanges, business involvement, so quiet, uh, under-the-radar security cooperation. I am afraid that Iraq, it's a, a fulcrum for the region. So it makes sense for us to try to develop an Iraq that is not going to be a source for instability in its neighboring countries. So certainly to the very, very basically, so that we don't have another Saddam Hussein-like figure who will violate borders, invade two of his neighboring countries, use chemical weapons on his own population, and potentially develop you know, ballistic missiles and, uh, and nuclear weapons. We don't want an Iraq that's focused on those things. We want an Iraq that is able to remain economically and socially stable and can gradually increase its level of prosperity. A stable, organized, and I will, Iraq that is becoming more prosperous will not be a destabilizing factor in the region. In the reverse, if we see what the Iranian goal is, at least in my mind, has been to keep Iraq just unstable enough that Iran can influence it, but not so unstable that it poses a threat to uh, to Iran directly. I think that's going to be for the Iranians a very, very difficult balancing act. How do you get that right? How do you make sure that the Iraqi government is weak enough that you can influence key parts of it, but not so weak that it collapses and causes unrest? I think that the United States can quietly, in the medium to long term, strengthen the Iraqi government and Iraq the perception of average Iraqis that they can have their own independent future, that they do have personal and national uh, agency. And that is probably the best thing that we can do to make sure that Iraq does not go the way of Syria. What I am afraid of is that if we continue to be anti-Iran, which can be translated into anti-Shia, too pro-Kurd or too pro-Sunni or focus our assistance or our well, our moral and our economic and military assistance based on sectarian groups or sectarian identity, we may inadvertently end up making Iraq even less stable than it is now. And an Iraq that is not stable, an Iraq that is feeling the worst effects of climate change, that isn't able to provide jobs for the nearly a million young Iraqis entering the labor market every year is going to be a source of instability for the region, not a source of stability. So I think that continued moderate level U.S. engagement uh, with occasional but not frequent engagement by the highest levels of government is necessary going forward. It isn't necessary because we broke Iraq in 2003 and now need to fix it, but rather I think that level of engagement is necessary to keep Iraq a strategic asset in the region, even if it is not acting directly at the behest of the United States, to keep the region more prosperous, more unified, and more stable. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave the conversation there for now. Ambassador Doug Silliman, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks very much, Scott. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had Lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. 
The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way 
to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Now let's turn to my separate conversation with Mr. Shalaby. A quick note, due to a technical issue, we had to stop this recording about halfway through and pick it up later on a separate device, so you may hear a difference in audio quality. Salam, you have been involved in Iraqi politics and policy for several decades now, going all the way back to, um, if not before, at least going back to the U.S.-led invasion in 2003. Can you give us a sense now, looking back, about how a lot of Iraqis think about the U.S.-led invasion and the removal of the Hussein regime that followed? What is its historical legacy kind of in the Iraqi political imagination for a lot of Iraqis? How is it understood now that so many years have passed? I I would say, you know, in 2003, the view was very much uh, among the vast majority of the population. I'm going to, you know, I mean, I'm going to say, you know, because, uh, you know, I don't intend to sound sectarian or anything, but, you know, among the Shia and the Kurds, they all were supportive of the invasion. And uh, for their own um, uh, sectarian or nationalistic reasons. If you ask the population now where we've had a basically a dysfunctional setup, dysfunctional governmental setup from that time on, uh, if you ask people now what they feel, you're going to get a mix of answers, but the basic summary is as follows. At least during Saddam's time, we had security and we knew, you know, there was one government we were dealing with. Now we don't have security. Corruption is rampant. You know, uh, it's very difficult to get anything done in government because there are so many political actors on the scene that uh, it's very difficult I mean, it's it's very difficult to exist. I mean, to to carry out your normal day to day business, and so uh, those you know are on the negative side. On the positive side, uh, obviously, people are a lot better off after two two thousand and three than they are than they were before. And secondly, there's a lot you know I'd like to say freedom. Uh, there's a feeling uh, that. Um, you know, there people are entitled to be critical, etc. Although that freedom is dwindling at some level, but it, it you know it continues to exist, and so uh, you know, so there are po- positives and negatives to that. 
How is the United States perceived as part of that legacy? You know, the United States and Iraq still have an ongoing relationship. There are still American diplomats and American uh, military forces engaged in training exercises in Iraq. There's still an ongoing relationship as there has been continuously really since 2003. But what does the legacy for the conflict and the complicated feelings about the status quo, the post, what's come of the US-led invasion in 2003, how does that reflect back on perceptions of the United States as a partner, as an ally, or as something different than those things? The first, again, if you look at it from, I'm going to talk about negatives and then positives. The the negative side is there. there is a lack of understanding at the Iraqi level. And I'm saying this from quite high up actors, politicians, till the person, the vegetable vendor on the street. Why did the U.S. come in and create this chaos? I mean, they believe that the chaos that ensued was intentional. And so, you know, the Arabs generally, Iraqis also, are, you know, think in very conspiratorial terms and they are not willing to to, to think through what the internal decision-making process in the U.S. was and the balances that had to be made, the deals that had to be made. They think, no, the U.S. intentionally came and created this chaos. And so uh, there, there is a lack of... Uh, you know, appreciation for what the U.S. tried to do. Second is, uh, and, and this, sorry, the first point ties into the fact that Iraqis have, since, you know, 1958, have been very much uh, mentally tied into a leader, a strongman, etc. And here you had a U.S. invasion and the, the net result was not a strong man, but a political system that, apart from it not you know being dysfunctional, has uh, led to tens of strong men, and therefore, you know they they uh, are critical about this. Third, though, they still feel the U.S. Is, since it was the entity that overthrew Saddam Hussein they still feel that it's the power. And so, you know, so, so they're kind of afraid of it at some level. And I'm talking about the people on the street, etc., the non-political types. And so they, there is a feeling that, you know, we don't want to challenge the U.S., etc., in, in ways that are uh, outside the norms because they would react quite aggressively, uh, militarily or otherwise. And uh, fourth, and, and this is, I would say, at a minority level, there is a feeling that there is a partnership. What this partnership is, isn't very clear. I mean, the number of conferences in D.C. and elsewhere about, you know, joint ventures and investment, etc., really nothing of the sort. I mean, generally, Iraq has not had foreign investment that's successful um, but specifically, U.S. companies have, you know, I mean, there are a few exceptions, obviously, in the oil and gas sector. You know, ExxonMobil was there. We're now in a, a dispute with ExxonMobil. 
some of the oil services companies are there, GE in the electricity sector. But those are not investments in the traditional sense of them starting businesses and taking a risk on Iraq in the kind of, uh, I mean, they've taken a risk on Iraq generally, but not in, you know, that strongly financially. Uh, in this, I mean, it's quite difficult to explain this point, but, you know, they, they didn't take much equity risk here. And so people are kind of troubled by this. Uh, you know, the U.S. says they're allies and they want to encourage business, and yet there isn't that much of a foothold in the investment side in Iraq. So that, that, I mean, again, it's a complicated relationship. The last point I would say, and this is, if, if you look at it from a Kurdish perspective, from a Sunni perspective, from a, a perspective of Shias in Baghdad, you know, secular Shias and so on, they don't understand how the U.S. came into Iraq uh, with all the good intentions and appear to have handed Iraq by and large, to um, uh, Iranian-supported actors. And they don't understand why that was. And so, you know, there, there, there is a bit of unhappiness about this. Well, that is such a, a major thread of the U.S.-Iraq relationship. Now, in a lot of ways, even more so now than it has been over the last 20 years, or at least certainly in the last 10 years or so, has been this tension between the United States and Iran and the way it has often, perhaps too often, from the perspective of many, uh, including Iraqi leaders who have often voiced this opinion, has too often played out on Iraqi soil or otherwise implicated the United States. How do people perceive this, the U.S.-Iran tension or conflict, whatever you want to call it? How does that relationship understood and how is it understood to affect Iraq and, and, and what is Iraq's role in it understood to be? So if you look at it from the perspective, from top-down perspective, so the, the political leaders, the prime minister, prime minister Sudani and before him, prime minister Kadhimi and, and uh, Dr. Adel Abdel Mahdi, their um, view is that Iraq can play a role in perhaps reducing tensions between Iran and the U.S. Dr. Abdul Mahdi especially wanted to kind of come up with a clear policy as to what are Iraq's interests first and then, and then how to translate those into playing a role in, in you know, calming the Iran-U.S. problems. But as you know, I mean, the situation during Abdul Mahdi's time, just got out of control. And, you know, attack on the U.S. Embassy, the killing of uh, Qasem Soleimani or Abu Mahdi Mohandas, etc. And therefore, the net, re- I mean, net result is, you know, uh, effectively, the, you know, the, if, if you scratch below the surface, it's leave us, you know, to both sides, leave us alone. Let, let us get on with our own business. But in reality, it's, obviously a lot more complicated, especially, you know, as it relates to the energy sector, as it relates to the power sector, as it relates to the sanctions and the impact of the sanctions on uh, Iraq, 
all of these are complicated factors. I mean, recently Iran has shelled uh, parts of Kurdistan or have admitted to shelling parts of Kurdistan. And, uh, you know, they feel that Iraqi Kurdistan is is being used as a conduit to threaten the regime in, in um, uh, Iran, and, and they don't like this. And so, you know, if, if uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, and, and this is, uh, you know, so, I mean, I've, I noticed it at the highest levels, for example, you know, our foreign minister, etc., you know, he realizes Iraq is the weakest element among those three countries. And so, you know, he's tried his hardest to to ameliorate the situation as they as it relates to Iraq, but he realizes that Iraq has just got limited powers, that it cannot do everything it wants here. So we've really been talking so far a lot about kind of broad perceptions and understandings. Uh, among Iraqis about these sorts of issues. How does that translate into political constraints for the Iraqi government and Iraqi politicians um, of all stripes? You know, we've seen certain elements of continuity across recent governments in regards to the Iraqi relationship with the United States and approach to the bilateral relationship. Uh, Then there have also at times been similar points of tension, similar red lines, um, that have popped up. Uh, and there is this ongoing controversy to some extent over U.S. activities and troop presence that the most recent iteration of which were requested as part of counter ISIS efforts in 2014, and then has kind of continued on, but now changed to a new phase where it's much more advised and assist, more limited U.S. presence. What do these different political perceptions and understandings of the Iraqi relationship with the United States mean for Iraqi politics and policy? What are the big constraints, the big obstacles in that relationship? And how do political leaders see what can and can't be accomplished through it? Okay. I mean, obviously, I I didn't uh, address the issue of ISIS earlier. But uh, I mean, again, at some level, uh, again, to do with the Iran-US relationship, both entities supported Iraq, and, and really in a big way. And I'll give you an example that former uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Hashar Zaybari, uh, used to give, which is that, you know, the, the day after ISIS entered Mosul, now Secretary Austin came, he was, uh, he was uh, present uh, at the time in Iraq uh, serving, went to see uh, Nuri Maliki and that morning, the morning after, and, uh, you know, asked him what kind of assistance he wanted, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, ultimately, the assistance, uh, military assistance, and I'm not talking uh, U.S. military personnel, but military assistance, the Iraqi military arrived around November after contracts were signed, you know, a bit before that. He left, you know, a couple of hours later, Qasem Soleimani came uh, to see Maliki and asked him what the, what the Iraqi military needed. And the first shipment took place the next day. And so you have that dynamic where, you know, you have an actor who's far more able to maneuver and another actor who you need. Now, obviously... As the war against ISIS developed, the U.S. was able to bring the coalition together 
And it was a very kind of interesting, uh, you know, turning a blind eye. So the U.S. would fight ISIS. I mean, the U.S. or the coalition would fight, and the Iraqi military would fight ISIS in the big cities, leaving the popular mobilization forces and Iranian elements to fight them in other uh, locations. And, and you know, all... All in all, it worked well. I mean, the, both sides were very, you know, assisted Iraq significantly. Now, legally, and, and you would know this, Scott, the U.S. presence in Iraq was drawn down uh, following the uh, signing of the um, SOFA. And at the time, I know the Iranians were putting intense pressure on uh, you know, the SOFA and uh, on the Iraqi government. And, you know, if, if you remember, I mean, the agreement was not even called status of forces agreement. It was called the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq agreement. Now, uh, uh, when ISIS took place, there, were, there was a clause in that agreement that allowed Iraq to request assistance. And now where we are now is... In, and during Adl Abdel Mahdi's, when he was prime minister, parliament met and issued a non-binding resolution that U.S. troops should leave. And this is following the attack on, on Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi Mohandas. And the bottom line was, is that, you know, if you look at it from the executive branch of Iraqi government, no, the executive branch and also the Kurdistan regional government doesn't want uh, the U.S. to leave, but they cannot, I mean, the Iraqi parliament cannot actively, uh, you know, uh, abrogate that resolution. And so you have a relatively unclear situation on the U.S. presence. And so Prime Minister Sudani, I think, is doing a good job by insisting on continuing with the uh, relationship, the security relationship with the U.S. on the ground under current scope without trying to change the legal scope because of constraints he has uh, among his allies and parliament that would prohibit a more formal agreement, etc. So it's, you know, um, things are going okay Let's leave them as is and continue with this uh, training, etc. Uh, from Kurdistan, they want the U.S. there at any level, and so they, uh, you know, one of the conditions of the uh, Kurds is that you know we have to continue with uh, having the U.S. troops uh, on the ground as protection. So we know that the relationship between Iraq and the United States, the long history of it, the challenges and the traumatic experiences that it's entailed has left these political constraints on Iraqi political actors that we see time and again. As you mentioned, you know, it's been hard for even Iraqi leaders who want to endorse relatively limited cooperation or engagement with the United States around security issues that have pretty broad acceptance and and a lot of which have been pursued for a long time to get approval from parliament. Um, it's politically risky. It's kind of a little bit of a, a sensitive point or a third rail that's easy to exploit for political opponents to those sorts of agendas. What steps could the United States, might the United States be able to take either in the short term or perhaps more likely in the medium to long term 
to begin to repair those dynamics, to get to the point where U.S. engagement with Iraq is not only accepted and ongoing, as it, it really has been for the last several decades, but actually something that doesn't have the such political inclinations that make it so hard to get broad political buy-in. I mean, I'm, I'm going to uh, maybe mention a, a look at it in the following way. I mean, you, 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 uh, and maybe this is you know part of the breakdown in thinking. I mean, uh, you know, you uh, refer to the U.S. having a long relationship with Iraq. I would look at it as being the exact opposite, that it's a very short relationship. I mean, it, it really, it goes back to 2003. It is very much a relationship of initially of victor, of conqueror versus uh, conquered. It's obviously changed its nature. And so, you know, at the end of the day, the, the depth of the relationship is actually quite limited i mean i if you look at uh, you know those uh, you know the us relationship with people for example in the krg you see it's a much more deeper it's a much deeper relationship because their interests are and they've been working closely together for years whereas you know you see the relationship of the us for example to the current government and it's you know at a formal level, you know there is this uh, strategic relationship, etc. But it's not that long term. I mean, the current prime minister, other than the U.S. ambassador and a few visitors, doesn't really have a relationship with the U.S. There are people around him who have some relationship, but again, it's not very deep. I mean, the foreign minister probably is the one who has the deepest relationship. But again, it's not as foreign minister that he has this relationship, but as the chief of staff of Masoud Barzani in Kurdistan. Um, where, and you look at it in the context of, I mean, if you look at it in the context of the relationship with Iran, for example, the Iraqis' relationship with Iran, that relationship at some level goes back, you know, a couple of centuries um, uh, where, you know, the religious... Um, back and forth between uh, Iraq and, uh, you know, certain Iraqis and Najaf and Iranians, etc., is, is much deeper and longer term. So really, I, I mean, one issue is, you know, you talk about a long relationship. I don't necessarily. Uh, you talk about a deep relationship. I think possibly not. Uh, but your other question was, how can the U.S. improve that? And in, in my opinion, you know, I, I look at, uh, you know, the various aspects of the current relationship, and there are things uh, fundamentally missing. Uh, as an example, I, um, you know, was very kind of promoting and pushing at the time. I don't know whether you're familiar with the so-called ExxonMobil uh, Southern Iraq Integrated Project deal, but it was a huge deal that would have transformed the Iraqi oil sector and allowed it to take off. And at the end of the day, the parties, uh, and, and this is ExxonMobil and the Iraqi Ministry of Oil, disagreed over certain you know, commercial terms um, and not really major ones. But had something like this 
taken place, you would have seen a much more integrated commercial relationship because the largest oil project in Iraq and potentially the largest infrastructure oil project in the Middle East would have been between ExxonMobil and uh, Iraq. And so, you know, I, I see the commercial dimension of things as somewhat limited, uh, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and that is one area that uh, things could improve. I see uh, at a cultural level, the relationships are somewhat uh, limited. Uh, I mean, other countries, um, you know, have, you know, significantly deeper relationships. And here I, for example, use France or Italy, where they're, you know, they they have a, a, a kind of less uh, transactional uh, relationship with Iraq. In light in light of this, I I uh, I think you know on the commercial side, the cultural side, and you know tied to that, uh, the NGO side, where I think, uh, you know, there the. the uh, Interests of some of the NGOs in Iraq is very uh, limited. You know, um, I mean, I recall, you know, a few years ago, uh, some time ago, you know, some gay rights activists were trying to push an agenda in Iraq, and you know, they they were effectively just rebuffed, but not in a rude way, just that culturally people were not willing to accept that and. Something like this, you know, you can't control NGOs, but there are a lot of more NGOs that could play a role here. So we've seen the United States oscillate a bit in the last few years, particularly between the Obama administration and the Trump administration and the Biden administration in its approach to Iraq generally and particularly to the tensions with Iran um, that are always on and sometimes break into conflict. In particular, we saw a moment in late 2019 and early 2020 where the United States was much more willing to use military force against Iran-backed Shia militias, and then ultimately culminated in by far the most controversial of those actions, the airstrike that killed Qasem Soleimani and a number of others uh, in the grounds of Baghdad's international airport. What impact do those sorts of actions have on the perception of the United States and the political ability to engage the United States um, by Iraqi politicians. There are still calls in some policy circles to say we should take, we being the United States, should take a harder line, be more aggressive in militarily pushing back against um, Iran, including within Iraq and, and Shia militias. That's not the approach the Biden administration has taken, but it has taken a handful of airstrikes as actions of what it frames as self-defense against these militias when they target U.S. diplomats and U.S. military personnel. You know, what do those occasional military engagements, what ramifications do they have for the U.S.-Iraqi relationship? Um, how do they affect things moving forward in ways that might be less direct and might be harder to, to gauge in the immediate moment of, of their aftermath? I mean, if you look at the Suleimani Abu Mahdi Mohandas, uh Strike, which, as you said, culminated in a uh, you know a series of events that led to this. The the result, and I you know sat with many Iraqi politicians after that strike. The end result is is this that people, 
I mean, you know, especially Abu Mahdi Mohandas, I mean, he had very deep relationships with people across, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, political actors, across all sorts of, you know, and, and historical ones. I mean, I recall, you know, at the time, Prime Minister Adil Abu Mahdi saying, you know, I've known Abu Mahdi Mohandas since 1981. I mean, this is 39 years. And, you know, he's, um, you know, he was just, I mean, shocked, upset, etc. Uh, having said this, so I mean, there are you know there is a rel- to answer you know one part of your question, uh, at least within one community, and it's a it's a relatively powerful community, the Shia community. There was anger at the U.S. Uh, because of these uh, airstrikes, etc. Uh, but then you you look at. Um, other communities, I mean, the Kurds at the time, you know, although they, they had a relationship with Mohandas, etc., did not feel the same anger. In fact, I would say they may, may have been uh, not unhappy with that strike. What, what I'm trying to get at is you have a, uh, a, a, a you know, at, at some level, the um, reaction to U.S. military actions or Iranian military actions is really what, what determines it is your outlook towards Iraqi then and the Iraqi state. And here what I mean is I'll, I'll give you a very, you know, simple analogy, but it's a really deep analogy. Uh, there are a number of very senior Iraqi politicians, uh, Shias and Kurds, who fought alongside Iran in the war uh, between Iran and Iraq. And yet there are also many Iraqi politicians uh, whose families fought for Iraq against Iran. And yet here they're brought together, uh, the ones who, you know, are, I would think, I'm I'm not going to use the word more powerful, but more represented in government are are those who have who had historically worked with Iran. And so, uh, and yet, you know, the largest part of the population were, you know, tied to the Iraqi military campaign against Iran. And so, you know, when, when somebody like, there's an attack on Soleimani or something by the U.S., those politicians who were, you know, close with Iran, associated with the Iran-Iraq war, were obviously very hurt, and and those who were on the other side were probably less hurt. Uh, and and you look at you know the the reaction uh, of the population at large. I mean, in Baghdad, for example, there wasn't this kind of you know people weren't upset by the U.S. It, you know using Iraqi soil to hit positions, etc. Um, you know because they they're not happy with the political structure that. They're not happy with the way the state has evolved since 2003. And so really, at the end of the day, you know, one of the key determinants is not the U.S.-Iran determinant, but intra-Iraqi uh, factors that, uh, address, you know, that deal with uh, how you view your community, how you view your immediate interests, uh, vis-a-vis the new Iraqi state that evolved. And uh, as a result, you know, you end up viewing the U.S.-Iran 
conflict um, from that perspective. So you've got a lot of people who, you know, deep down are benefit, you know, are you know benefiting from political structure, and so they would the current political structure in Iraq, and so they would be upset with the U.S. if you know it, it led to uh, attacks on Iran inside Iraqi soil, and there are those who are not happy with the political structure who think blame Iran for it. And so really it's uh, the reaction and, and really at the end of the day that example I gave of the people fighting with Iran and uh, during the Iran-Iraq war and people fighting for Iraq during that war is that the state, the, the nation has not come to a uh, common understanding of what it means to be Iraqi. And that's a very key determinant of this. So I think over the last, particularly the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of the different lines of engagement the United States used to pursue with Iraq kind of shrink or fall away. There used to be really robust engagement around rule of law issues, institutional development, um, trade and economic issues, lots of other government-to-government types of engagement, government-to-government assistance of various types, and then, of course, security assistance, military-to-military assistance. That latter prong, which is always prominent, um, we shouldn't pretend otherwise, is now kind of the main prong, or at least the most the main focus of the U.S.-Iraqi assistance government-to-government relationship. Do you think there are, that's a perhaps a mistake or underly ambitious? Is is there other threads of effort that we should see the United States and Iraq engaging on their bilateral relationship in addition to the security element? You, you've already mentioned the commercial and business development, but I'm wondering whether there are other parts of the kind of broader relationship that existed in the immediate years following the U.S.-led invasion that maybe are worth resurrecting in some sort of new form. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I've, I've noticed, and I, I've noticed it not only in the context of the U.S. Uh, uh, and Iraq, but in other European contexts in Iraq. And, and that uh, issue relates to the misunderstanding of what it is that drives Iraqis. And, and by this, I mean, you know, I very much closely tie it to corruption. So, you know, you have, uh, for, as an example, you know, you have, you know, you had significant assistance to the Iraqi judiciary. And there was a setup and that setup, you know, provided some element of independence of the judiciary, et cetera. And at the end of the day, correct, there is some independence of the judiciary now. But there's also significant corruption in the judiciary. And really what I sense is that there is a slight misunderstanding of how, how Iraqis think. And, you know, and, and it's, it's very difficult to come and impose on another country a set of guidelines that work in the U.S. or that work in Germany or so on in how you do business or how you conduct yourself in protecting human rights without really understanding what it is that drives Iraqis. And here I, I see this, you know, and I give an example of the judiciary where, you know, you theoretically have an independence of the judiciary, but a single, you know, telephone call from a senior political figure to a judge or to the head of the judiciary or so on would lead to a decision that, 
you know, does not necessarily coincide with the actual uh, facts of a particular case, etc. And so, you know, as a lawyer, and uh, uh, you know, I, I see this very frequently, where the, you know, corrupt actors in the judiciary are able to be influenced a lot more easily. And therefore, you know, when you look, other than in the military, when you look at, uh, you know, other areas, this this keeps propping up is the way that Iraqis think and are interested in, you know, the, the um, development of institutions. I mean, I'll give you a personal example. When I was appointed to lead the Trade Bank of Iraq in 2020, Many of those around me, their immediate instinct was I should take actions against the, the previous CEO of the bank to, to take actions against him so that, because that's what he did to the one before and what the one before did to the one before that. And I said, well, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't bide well for the institution. You, if you want to build an institution, you can't have attacks on the previous guy, even if you did you know, just thought some of his policies were not right, fine, but uh, you have to look at the institution above everything else. And here, the Iraqis were upset, and they, it's, they're not used to this kind of thinking. And it, it applies across many of the uh, other aspects of the non-military uh, part of the state. And you see this current government, for example, I haven't seen this since 2003, where they have decided to take a really vengeful uh, approach against the uh, previous prime minister and some of his staff uh, and are using, I'm not defending them. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, there are no wrongs carried out, but really from the first day that this uh, current team took over, there was a sense of vengeance. We, we want to take revenge against the previous prime minister and his team. And it's really gone across the board now. And uh, I feel, you know, at, uh, again, I'm, you know, I'm not defending uh, from a, a legal perspective uh, whether those people did, you know, the, the people in the previous administration did wrong things, etc. But the vengefulness is not, uh, you know, is, is a bit too, too far. And, but it's, it's part and parcel of Iraqi let's say, mentality, and it's somewhat difficult to break it. I want to pose one last question to you, which is to step back a little bit, because there's there's a big debate in the United States, I'm sure you're well aware about, where the Middle East generally, really, in a lot of ways, but particularly where Iraq, um, for purpose of this conversation, fits within the broader U.S. strategic picture. There's a sense that you know, the Biden administration has decided we have to focus on China and Russia, and all these other issues are becoming lower priority, not the focus that they once were. Although to some extent, that's a little bit inevitably of an oversimplification, because, you know, you can't just have one or two main security interests. The world dictates otherwise in terms of having a much more complex picture of where actual national interests lie. I guess my question for you is, where do you think the relationship for the United States and Iraq from both of their perspectives should be in terms of each other's relationships? How important are they to each other strategically in terms of their interests and, and on other dimensions potentially as well? And what direction do you think that means this relationship needs to move in in the next 20 years as it kind of enters into this next chapter? 
I mean, I'll, I'll give you my kind of a, a um, brief look. I mean, to me, Iraq as, let's say, as a project is important to the U.S. from the perspective that, uh, you know, the U.S. undertook the step of, you know, changing the previous regime, etc. And so, uh, it you know, it was critical for the U.S., for example, to support Iraq in the, in the fight against ISIS. Uh, because had that failed, it, it would have, you know, been a very kind of obvious problem for uh, the U.S. In, in the sense that, you know, it created a change of regime that led to uh, a kind of Islamic, uh, you know, caliphate. Uh, uh, so from that perspective, I understand it in the big, but th- we're now 20 years later. And in reality, you know, when I talk, when I used to talk internally with the government, I used to say, you know, don't overthink that the U.S. is invested in Iraq to such an extent. Don't make requests of the U.S. Uh, that are too aggressive that you think that, you know, you've got, you know, President Biden or, you know, before him, President Trump spending 22 hours a day thinking of Iraq. This, this is not the case. So at best, you know, Iraq is a kind of actor that they want to make sure does not fall into the hands of Iran on the one hand, does not fall into the hands of uh, ISIS on the other, and then uh, it's able to survive economically so that nobody has to, you know, come and uh, sort it out. You know, and so, you know, realistically for the U.S., these are the critical constraints. I mean, I would say make sure, you know, I mean, critical goals for Iraq. One, don't let it fall to Iran. To don't let it uh, fall to ISIS, etc., and then don't let it collapse economically. I don't think there's anything you know benefits slightly commercially from it, etc. But there's been an additional issue for the U.S., which is don't let Iraq be a uh, conduit or a area f- from which to uh, perhaps uh, target neighboring countries to Iraq who are friendly with the U.S. And by this, I mean Saudi Arabia principally. And so, um, you know, for the U.S., this was a very, um, you know, th- these are the four parameters. Uh, you know, and, and I don't think you can really go far beyond that and ask, you know, for more active U.S. involvement in any other part of Iraq. I mean, perhaps now under the Biden administration, there's an element of environment, et cetera, you know, to do with the gas problems. But that really is, is, is uh, you know, as, as far as it gets. From the Iraqi perspective, um, you know, they, they want, obviously, U.S. know-how. They want support from the U.S. internationally. And they've only begun to now understand that that support has a price to it, which is that um, Iraq can't appear to uh, be uh, under Iran's wing. So really, I mean, the parameters are now much more limited, and they, by their nature and the interests of the U.S., you know, will continue to be. I mean, obviously, if there's a resurgence of ISIS or uh, there is uh, some other element, maybe the U.S. would get active again. And, uh, you know, uh, I recall during the um, uh, Clinton administration, 
uh, I remember a particular meeting I attended in which somebody from the uh, National Security Council said, look, President Clinton's policies, he wants to keep Iraq off the front pages. And I think the same Biden approach exists, where they don't want Iraq to be on the front pages. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, hopefully allow Iraq to develop slowly and organically and not be on the front pages. You know, and, and I think that, you know, if, if we work along those lines, perhaps, you know, uh, so, so for example, if the relationship between Kurdistan, the KRG and the central government uh, develop very badly and, you know, this conflict between them, that w- could bring Iraq onto the front pages. So the U.S. has to make sure that that relationship is under control. Well, unfortunately, we'll have to leave the conversation there for now. Salam Shalabi, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Sure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and other special perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.